Hello and welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Disputes Looking to the Future podcast. I'm Philip Kelly, a litigation and arbitration partner here at DLA Piper, and I co-chair our specialist technology disputes group in the UK. In this short series of podcasts, I'll be joined by some of our leading lawyers to discuss the most exciting developments in tech, the legal implications, and what they might mean for you and your business. Welcome to episode three, which is the last in this run of our series looking at emerging technologies and their interaction with the law. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Gareth Stokes, a partner in our technology and outsourcing team. Hi, everyone. So in this latest podcast, we're going to be talking about the resurgence of sort of bespoke or specialist hardware, what that means, why it's happening, and the implications for that when entering into large-scale IT projects and how you can minimize legal and commercial risk. Pleased to say that I'm joined by Gareth Stokes, who's a partner in our technology and outsourcing team for the purpose of this discussion. Welcome, Gareth. And Gareth, perhaps you could start us off by explaining what some people have referred to as the, the hardware renaissance. Thank you, Philip. Delighted to be here. The hardware renaissance, that's an excellent term that I think captures this resurgence of innovation and interest in the hardware space. And what do I mean by that? So if we were to wind the clock back, perhaps 20, 25 years, we'd have found that an awful lot of IT projects were very heavily based around on-premises installations where the software stack was very definitely designed around a particular set of server hardware infrastructure that was part of the the project and where that hardware was very often purchased, especially for the project itself. We'd seen over time a zoo of different IT environments that had sort of been in the enterprise space. That had largely settled down to be a consistent x86-based server stack by the time we sort of reached the mid-1990s and onwards. But even so, you were very definitely right-sizing server infrastructure for your project at the time that the project was being initiated. And the capital expenditure associated with all of that hardware would inevitably become part of the, the project cost. When you were looking at the total cost of ownership of the project, that hardware had to be taken into account. Now, over time, what we saw was a gradual shift towards increasingly commoditized hardware, where exactly the hardware you were purchasing could to some extent be sort of slightly detached from the timelines and and cadence of purchases of the software stack, and you could update the hardware and software on different cadences. And therefore, even if you ended up getting the software aspects of a project wrong or something went wrong with the implementation aspects of a project, you were nevertheless reasonably insulated from the risks that attached to the hardware purchases you were making. The generic server hardware would be useful whichever direction your software stack went over time. And that process was only accelerated as we sort of hit the kind of early 2010s and we saw this shift to what in the olden days would have been called application service provider contracts and which were sort of rapidly overtaken by this use of cloud terminology to describe remote hosted 
solution. So all of a sudden, you've abstracted away the hardware layer altogether, and we get this platform as a service idea taking over. So all of a sudden, it seems as though the hardware problem is, to a large extent, solved. It stopped being interesting. And that was where enterprise IT was for a good decade or so, really, with the cloud being the kind of ubiquitous new way that infrastructure was designed and purchased for a large number of projects. And it was only if you had a particular need for heightened control, heightened on-premises access to data, that you might be considering a kind of on-prem installation. What's changed is that we've started to see new types of computing demand within the enterprise. The big one here is obviously machine learning and AI, but there are a whole series of other things that have come up recently. We've started to see a lot of interest in blockchain-based solutions and Web3 outside of the pure coin offerings. So can we use Web3 and cryptographic technologies to have greater validation within the supply chain? Can we have it conducting access to sort of scarce resources in a, in a more efficient way? So there's been an awful lot of interest in those technologies. And, and as I say, machine learning, AI, and replacing, as it's sometimes rather, um, <laughs> rather euphemistically termed, replacing carbon workers with silicon workers has become a real trend in, in enterprise IT recently. Now, the difference there is that these are tasks that instead of requiring the old high-precision, high-speed, relatively low-core count computing platforms that we, we become used to in the kind of generic x86 world, these are tasks that benefit enormously from having massively parallel, massively multi-core computing platforms with often relatively lower precision within each each compute cycle. And because of that, we've started to see new and different hardware solutions be put forward onto the market for these particular use cases. So anyone who is a PC gamer at home will know that in recent years, it's become incredibly difficult to buy a graphics card. And the reason for that is <laughs> you've seen enormous demand, <laughs> enormous demand for graphics cards as a result of them being useful both for cryptographic mining and for GPU-based compute in the AI space. So if you've been out there trying to get hold of the very latest and greatest graphics cards, they were largely just out of stock, or if you did find one, it was someone sort of selling them on secondary markets with a very large markup. Yeah, have um, healthy margins on those things. So just so why is it that the graphics cards in particular are of you know use to mining for crypto and other things? What why this sudden demand? What is it about them that means that the graphics cards in particular are incredibly helpful when you're doing that? So it's the difference in architecture between a classic central processing unit based around, as I say, x86 technology in the vast majority of cases, although the same is true whether you're talking about a classic x86-based processor or indeed things based around sort of ARM cores and things like that. A CPU is designed to run a relatively small number of threads very, very quickly and to a very, very high precision. So very often, you know, 64-bit or more, precision, which gives you a very, very good computing platform if you are trying to do 
things that can be run in, in one or a small number of threads and, and you need that kind of extreme precision for your calculations. And that had been the kind of dominant theme within computer science for 50, 60 years. What we've seen though is particular types of task. And the reason that it's graphics cards in particular is the first use case for this in the sort of mass market was actually 3D calculations in, in the gaming environment. Some tasks actually require a very, very large number of relatively more simple calculations to be carried out in parallel. And those calculations will be good enough if they're carried out to a relatively lower precision because they only need to be precise within perhaps the resolution of a, of a computer screen. They only need to be precise to the relatively low bit depths of, of a 24-bit color space on a computer display. So what you ended up with is a whole series of specialist processors, GPUs, graphics processing units, being designed which were super capable of doing that kind of massively parallel computing task with linear algebra being the, the particular focus, matrix multiplication operations, those sorts of things, at very sort of medium grade precision, shall we say. And it turns out, happily, that exactly the same kinds of computing demand exist in cryptographic technologies, because again, you're trying to solve a very, very large number of linear algebra equations as quickly as possible in order to find the solutions to mining problems and end up with sort of largest number of leading zeros and lock the next block in a blockchain. Or you're trying to do very large numbers of matrix multiplication operations in parallel to either train or undertake inference on a modern neural network-based machine learning system. So it just so happened that exactly the same computing demands that were driving the GPUs in the mid development of, of GPUs from the mid-90s onwards have resonance and find demand in these other computing spaces. So that's the rise of the GPU as a kind of general purpose computing platform in its own right. It isn't the be all and end all though, because particularly in the machine learning space, having access to very, very large numbers of parallel computing threads is great. But what you also need is very, very high bandwidth to memory. So having a kind of monolithic block of memory that has to be constantly accessed back and forth by the GPU processor slows things down relative to a situation where you actually have memory locally on the computing die itself. And there's also other ways of structuring these things so that they could be even more effective at carrying out particular kinds of processing on tensors on particular vector structures that are they're often found within uh, machine learning models. And so you've ended up with different companies pursuing different architectures to be even more efficient within the machine learning and AI space. So we've got NVIDIA, graphics card manufacturer, who has got its Ampere and now Hopper GPU technologies, which are still based around that kind of classic GPU technology, but do now have a whole series of accelerators for kind of relatively lower precision AI operations. We've got companies like Graphcore with their Colossus line of, of what they call intelligence processing units, where they have massively multi-core 
CPUs, all of which have access to their own local memory on die. And so they have enormous amounts of memory actually within the, within the structure of the chip, which gives them massive benefits for certain types of memory intensive AI calculations. We've got Google with its tensor processing units, which again are incredibly useful if you've designed your model in a way that, that is able to take advantage of their tensor processing structure. So we've got these different models out there, all of which have benefits in different circumstances. And so that's one of the areas in which we've seen this hardware renaissance, this explosion of new innovation at the hardware layer itself, driven by the needs of these new enterprise level computing requirements. Yeah, just on that last point in terms of you know, the needs of the enterprise scale computing requirements. If I'm a business and I'm I'm looking to enter into a project, the reason I would have thought that most businesses want to enter into the project is the, the service that it can provide, the results you will obtain, not necessarily the particular features of the hardware that kind of enable that service to be provided. But you know, as it's sort of clear from the description you just gave there, the various different types of technology, there'll be lots of businesses that probably don't have the expertise in-house to necessarily be aware of all the different features of the technology and how they might be replicable, how might may be transportable across different providers, if at all, et cetera. So if, if you're a business looking to take advantage of these developing technologies and uh, this bespoke hardware that enables them, what are the kind of things that you need to be thinking of when you're doing your due diligence and then you know, subsequently entering into you know, a contract to provide these kind of services? Yeah, that's a that, that's a great observation because you're exactly right, Phil, that the business driver for all of this is we want to do task X better. We want to do task X more efficiently or we want a you know, market-leading service in, in that field or whatever it happens to be. Very often, it will be something within a kind of business process outsourcing environment where, as I say, the, the real aim is to sort of shift tasks away from being reliant on human touch points to being as automated as possible with machine decision-making involved to the greatest extent possible. Or it will be we've got this supply chain challenge that we think that can be solved and validated with this particular crypto technology or whatever it happens to be. But there'll be the business aim that's driving all of this in the first instance. And often, therefore, the sort of solution design phase will actually be something that is done involving third-party experts And the solution that you end up with may well be in part influenced by who you choose for for that role. It may well in part be informed by the sort of technology expertise that is being pushed by by that particular organisation. But in an ideal case, you will have someone who's sort of relatively technology agnostic, relatively familiar with, with all of the various different options and can help to design something that best and most efficiently is going to deliver the business outcome. And ideally, do so with the solution in as near to a vanilla state as it possibly can be, because there's a broad rule with these things that the more you have to customise them, the more that there is to go wrong. Um, So that's ideally the start of the project if it's going to go well, is a really well-informed, well-thought-through design phase that is able to translate that sought-after business outcome into 
the right IT solution from the hardware layer all the way up to kind of software interfaces and configuration and integration and all of those other sorts of things. Yeah, and I think you probably touched on this earlier. You know, one of the big differences when you're implementing or, or purchasing a project that's going to involve integrated hardware as well as kind of the software solution is that in that scenario, the level of upfront cost that you have to invest prior to sort of proving or accepting the solution as, as meeting your requirements is presumably that's quite a lot greater, is it? Because of the extra cost of the hardware that you need in order to obtain the service. Oh, definitely, yeah. And that's that's one of the interesting things where actually what we're seeing is some of the solutions that were common in the industry a couple of decades ago coming back to the fore because once upon a time it was an accepted part of each project, as I say, that there was going to have to be some linked capital investment in the hardware that would then manifest as a cost to the project. And in some cases, what you'd see is the customer organisation say, well, actually, it's better, cheaper for us to sort of pay for all of that up front as a sort of a single cost and not, therefore, muddy the waters in terms of the cost of any kind of project-based systems integration work, not muddy the cost of any sort of software licenses or, or support services that, that might come off the back of that and we'll have all of these as sort of neat, transparent costs that we're able to sort of identify quite neatly. And very often what you'd find is that the customer would want to have a sort of smoothed out set of, of capital up costs up front that, that sort of were blended into the software and support charges over the course of a multi-year project. And so you'd have balance sheet engineering by the suppliers to enable that to effectively roll forward the uh, the capital cost into a sort of slightly elevated per transaction charge or, or per person headcount charge or whatever the core charging model for the sort of services might be. And that obviously creates complexity because you've got to then keep track of that. You've got to work out what the sort of financing aspect of it is. And it also means that whereas commonly you might only be having a conversation about what the termination fee would be if a customer are exercising termination for convenience rights in a contract, where you've used that balance sheet engineering as part of the project, there will be circumstances where it is fair for the supplier to get paid the unrealised bit of the finance component in any termination circumstance, including where the customer is terminating for the supplier's material breach. So that then will lead to a much more complex set of, of payment provisions that are triggered by termination circumstances, regardless of the basis of the termination, where there being effectively a termination charge that's payable in any circumstance, calculated on the basis of the sort of unrealised part of the, uh, of the finance, plus potentially a termination fee if it's a termination for convenience circumstance calculated in, in the usual way, the sort of, you know, some constrained costs or, or, you know, unrealized profit expectation for some portion of the of the service term or whatever it might be that's driving that conversation. And that would lead to the sort of overall termination fee conversation, as I say, having to take into account that finance component. In addition, there's the aspect of whether or not the 
customer is confident making the commitment to the particular solution and the particular platform over a long term. So one of the other things that we've seen in the last few years is contract terms on average becoming a bit shorter. At one time, we would have expected infrastructure as a service contract to be probably somewhere between, you know, five and 10 years in length on average with probably a hardware refresh point or two baked into the timeline. The rise of cloud-based solutions and the detachment of hardware from the kind of wider solution meant that actually we've seen a shrinking of timelines. And customers have been able to sort of de-risk that kind of long-term commitment by saying, well, actually, there's very little cost consequence for us if we go for you know, a three-year timeline instead of a 10-year timeline. At one time, you'd have been seeing you know, massively hiked premium pricing for not giving the kind of long-term commitment, whereas in the cloud world, that wasn't the case by any stretch of the imagination. We're also, therefore, in addition to sort of seeing things like balance sheet finance come back on the scene, because of the conversation around hardware having to take place at the outset. We're also seeing timelines for these deals be pushed back out again, because you need a longer period of time potentially to sort of realise the benefit of the of the capital investment. Yeah, as you know, I'm a disputes lawyer by trade. And so <laughs> my experience of projects tends to be those where there are uh, difficulties or tensions and so your, your mind immediately goes to, well, how do these sort of changes, how, how does the move to a more integrated hardware and software model, how does that affect your, your risk profile? And it, it seems to me there's probably a number of ways in which that risk profile is changed. So mm-hmm. you might mention this earlier. If you're using specialist hardware, particularly if the hardware is bespoke to the solution or the customer, you're introducing you know, more potential points of failure more opportunity for things to go wrong, you know, certainly when the, the hardware is less commoditized. I suppose another factor is you talked about extended contractual terms. I suppose one of the reasons for the extension is the need to obtain, install, test, approve the hardware, mm-hmm. which is a process that needs to take place before you get to you know, your sort of delivery phase. And there's probably more opportunity for delay there because what you're doing is inherently more complicated than when you're implementing a software solution based on more commoditized architecture. So delay, which unfortunately is a bit of a recurring feature of large-scale IT projects, there are greater opportunities for that. But then the biggest factor is cost. The potential value that's associated with these projects the capital investment in the hardware, the consequences, if your project goes wrong, it's not implemented, you need to terminate. It seems to me that most of the things that we've been discussing are likely to increase that cost, increase that value. Um, I think we've probably had this discussion before. If If you think about the main reasons for disputes, they probably are in order, money, money, and money. (laughs) <laughs> occasionally yep. principles but perhaps less often but if you're you know if, if you're a customer and you've you're faced with a project that is failing but it's built on bespoke hardware that is essentially unique to the particular suppliers services and solution that they're offering you and you want to terminate you wish to move to another supplier 
you know, to receive equivalent services, the costs of doing that are going to be so much greater if it means you've got a load of hardware that just cannot be used with the new supplier is, you know, is wasted. And then you've got the additional timelines it takes to, you know, retender, go through the design phase, implementation, acceptance, et cetera. So you've got a greater potential you know, loss attaching to the kind of disputes that you see under IT projects. So I think that sort of creates probably an increased risk of disputes because of the very nature of, of what the project relates to, which is probably not what you know most businesses looking at these kind of projects want to hear. Presumably you're talking to clients about ways in which you can or they can mitigate against those kind of risks. Yeah, and I think that those are all really well-observed points, actually, Phil, because just one live example, I was talking to a client earlier this morning about an AI project where their project is going to require access to high-performance AI-accelerated computing resources for a good many months just to get to the sort of version 1.0 trained uh, trained model they're looking at doing something extremely sophisticated and they're in the design phase now and actually they've got a couple of different hardware platforms that offer potentially different benefits and potentially different compromises if they choose to go down one path or the other and the reason that that is obviously receiving an enormous amount of attention now is that the choice will determine sort of several millions of dollars of spend depending on on which of those directions they go in just for the kind of the version one training aspect of the solution let alone the things that might come after that so you can immediately see how if you make that choice poorly or if you're steered in the wrong direction by professionals who who haven't taken the right sorts of things into account or aren't sort of necessarily at as aware of the all of the aspects of the solution that would be the right one for the customer as they should be, you've immediately got a, a loss just in terms of the hardware that makes it worthwhile talking to litigators about recovering that rather than it being something where there's potentially a few months of, all right, we go back and have a look at the drawing board in, in software terms, but it's something that's potentially recoverable without having this massive wasted capital expenditure. So that's a real world sort of live example from from just early today where exactly those sorts of issues were being looked at and talked about in a real world project. I think in terms of the avoiding risk issue or, or mitigating risk issue though, it's very much that conversation. It's understanding exactly what it is that is being offered or is being suggested as a solution. Now, this is a sort of slightly unfair thing to do because you sort of say well, to the customer, well, you've you've admitted you don't have the in-house expertise to necessarily make this decision. You've gone and acquired some services from an organisation that's offering this kind of design phase or, or design solution, etc. But then you can't necessarily rely very heavily on it. And I think it's about having a very, very clear and very, very thorough conversation around all of the various different aspects of of the solution that's being proposed, because it's an awful lot easier to make tweaks to things at a planning phase and take slightly longer in doing that and be satisfied with the outcome than it is to sort of fix the thing months after when you've already started hardware purchases, things are being, being delivered, things are being shipped from around the world. And 
you know, we're in a space where it's not, it's still not that easy to get hold of an awful lot of things within the supply chain. So, you know, the supply chain delay is something else that could well torpedo things, although obviously it becomes a question of just ideally waiting it out if products will be delivered. But that can again push timelines out if things are going wrong. So that due diligence aspect of things is, is super important. We obviously, you know, in a sense, are advocating, therefore, planning within that the greatest possible amount of validation of what's being done. And one way of doing that would be to run kind of proof of concept and pilot projects. That might well be something where you're able to have access to a small amount of the hardware, ideally on a kind of rental basis or something like that, in order to sort of fully mitigate the risk without kind of capital cost but at least validate in some small way the solution. And one of the nice things about sort of machine learning models and and AI is very often there is actually some degree of scalability between the sort of smaller, cheaper, quicker to train variants of a model and the capability of the larger in terms of uh, larger number of parameters, larger in terms of larger amount of training data that's been fed into the training of a model, larger in terms of the amount of computing resources that are therefore being consumed in doing that. But there will be some some scaling between the, the sort of small pilot version and the, and the full version. And therefore, you can gain a fair amount of confidence that actually the system is going to, broadly speaking, have the features and functions that you're looking for as a result of doing that. And then presumably that's a, that's a bit of a balancing exercise for a business because going down the, the proof of concept or the pilot project route it's going to reduce an element of risk because you're testing things without the same commitment, but it's going to push out the timelines a bit, you know, when compared to just going straight into your project. So it's something that you, you have to balance over what your priorities are as a business in terms of when you need the improvements that the service you're paying for is going to provide. Exactly. And it's one of the sort of fairly common trade-offs is everybody wants everything done yesterday, but actually if you're going to reduce the risk of things going wrong, very often taking slightly longer about it and doing the job properly in the first place will uh, will result in a happier experience overall. I mean, it's the IT project equivalent of uh, measure twice, cut once. So <laughs> we'd certainly advocate that people should try and do that as far as possible. I suppose one other way of mitigating these things is actually that we are starting to see effectively the trend towards the cloud repeated but in the in the specialist computing space. So it's not the case necessarily that every single project that wants to rely on on specialist hardware necessarily has to go down the, the route of treating that as a capital cost and go to the expense of getting that. It is possible now to have GPU compute in the cloud or, or cloud access to some of these other specialist AI accelerator options. It's still not super common, but we think that that will become more common in future and obviously the benefit of doing that is you're converting you know some capital expenditure into service expenditure there you're effectively reducing the reliance on uh, kind of permanent investments in non-fungible elements of the solution you're able to sort of potentially de-risk that and change forces and it may well even be that you can sort of move from a kind of rental space to a, a purchased space if it turns out that actually you've, you've done that for proof of concept and are comfortable making the investment 
at that stage. So, so there are different ways of sort of shaping these things, relying on rental and, and cloud solutions to some extent. Yeah, and I suspect that that's probably the next trend along this path where we're sort of seeing a move towards greater importance of, of hardware and on-premises hardware. But as technologies develop and probably as the market broadens, some of that will move back on cloud and that will make these solutions perhaps more accessible to more businesses, less sort of risk and elements of capital investment, but also sort of see more refinement as the market matures. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that we'll we'll see two we'll two see two bifurcating trends is is my guess. One is that for those areas where actually we can see kind of that trend towards the commoditization of these different things in the market will probably settle out around a, a small number of these architectures as being the ones that are, are sort of more successful. Those will eventually become relatively easier to access via cloud solutions and those sorts of things. And we'll see that trend into the cloud and we'll probably see some of those contract transformations reverting so that, you know, we'll end up with a trend towards sort of slightly shorter timelines again, the capital investment elements will disappear and so on and so forth. So that will certainly help the customer side of the equation in in those contractual conversations at that point. I think the other direction that things might go in is we are starting to see, uh, you know, it's been predicted for a very, very long time, uh, a sort of a real tailing off in Moore's law and the extent to which we're able to reap the continuing benefits of shrinking feature sizes on on chips and having you know more transistors in smaller and smaller areas, a greater compute per watt and so on and so forth, simply as a result of die shrinks. We are definitely getting to the end of that world. And so the extent to which we're, we're going to continue to benefit from computing being on this sort of increasingly lower cost route is, is, is sort of going to be coming to an end, at least as far as silicon is concerned. But that then begs the question, if we are moving into a world where things like you know highly parallel calculations, matrix multiplication, etc., are more and more and more important, are we actually going to start to see things like photonic computing and, and other uh, computing platforms that are not based around silicon and don't necessarily have some of the same hard limits, or at least aren't going to face the same hard limits in the near future, are they going to take up the mantle? And will we actually see some of the real breakthroughs and the the new hardware choices actually be in the non-silicon world where everything that we've just said about a hardware renaissance is amplified to an even greater extent because you're now picking something that's even more unique or even more different to the mainstream than simply going with different silicon-based solutions. So I think, yeah, there'll be one commoditization trend and there'll be one even more sort of unique solution trend depending on whether the current solutions fit your needs for AI, Web 3.0, et cetera, computation, or whether you're actually pushing even further onto that path. Yes, I think you're looking some distance ahead with that in terms of where we're from at the moment, but obviously very interesting to your, hear your predictions as what's coming down in the sort of the medium to long term. Um, I think that's, <laughs> that's probably a good point to wrap up our discussion today thank you very much for your time gareth very fascinating as always and thank you very much to our listeners for listening to this podcast i hope you have enjoyed the series thank you very much thank you philip